You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. And can I also mention that in October, um, Bauchikan is, is coming. So if, if any of you are interested in, in the mystery world, um, Bauchikan is uh, na- named after Anthony Boucher. Um, it is not pronounced Boucheron, although it looks like that. Um, <coughs> and it's going to be here on the, the weekend in the middle of October. Yes, and I'll let everybody know about that, too, via the newsletter. Uh, Tachyon and Fly-By-Night Books is hoping to be in the dealer's room for it. And it's at the Hyatt, right at the foot of Market, which is as convenient as could be. But it's very exciting to have it back in San Francisco, too. Uh, it tells something about Bouchercon. Is it, uh, uh, I've, I've never been. Is it, It's pretty big, right? They, they normally have, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, that's kind of what I figured. It's the, the, the big, the big conference, um, for the mystery world. It runs around 1800 to 2000 people. Um, not as big as some of the fantasy conventions, but, uh, very, very interesting. And a lot of the people who come, uh, you know, there's a bunch of Brits who come. Um, so this is probably your only chance to see people like Val McDermott, who doesn't tend to tour a lot. Uh, she'll be here. Um, in fact, I think she's, I think she's interviewing me. I'm the guest of honor. And so I think we're doing Oh, you're the guest so. of honor. Yeah. Ah, yeah, so. well, you left that So out. it is going to be <laughs> party time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah. That's a big deal. It'll be fun. Yeah, that's so. neat. All so right. Pl- plan that in October. All right. Oh, and I, I have one one small announcement of a much more immediate nature, which is that uh, if there's time anyway, I don't know if they kick us out of here, but after, when, when we're wrapped up here, I've been making bookmarks for people. Um, and if you want a bookmark, I will I will make you a bookmark with, um, I will write a mystery tailored just for you <laughs> on the bookmark. Um, wow. And those so those will be available. Wow. Okay. Well. Wow. This is a craft that takes you a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was very interesting. <laughs> uh, I just wanted, I wanted to just start by asking um, um, Laurie, uh, just can you tell us something about the origin of the, the Russell um, novels? I mean, I mean, they're, I mean, now the, the origin is in the series itself, but how did that arise in your in your work? Was that your first uh, work that you undertook, or was it were you already writing other stuff? How did that come up? Well, I started the book that that became Califia's Daughters in um, I think in '84, um, but I had two small kids, and it wasn't until '87 when my son went off to preschool three glorious mornings a week <laughs> that um, that I had a little bit of a little corner of life that I could do what I wanted to and then I, I you know I sat down that September that he went off to school um, and and wrote um, I was 15 when I first met Sherlock Holmes 15 years old with my nose in a book as I walked the Sussex Downs and nearly stepped on him um, and and that that voice just you know it was there. Um, I never write in it with any kind of planning or um, or sense of where I'm going with a book, um, and that that indeed started me on uh, on that pattern of just writing where the book wants to go. 
But it, it was after Caliphia's Daughters. I, I had written half of Caliphia's Daughters, yeah. Now, with Caliphia's Daughters, I mean, the I don't know the book, but just so, some of the so – it sounds – and the period, it sounds like some of it's out of, like, uh, Susie Sharnas, Lizzie Lynn. Were you reading any of them, or did you have any sense of that? There was a sort of a uh, radical feminist wave in science fiction at that mm-hmm. point. Were you aware of that? Or, yeah, or? I un- undoubtedly had read a certain amount. Um, I was not – I think I probably had read more of the sort of classic um, science fiction um, kind that they're, they're not writing much of now. But, um, now, what would you call that? Oh, the, the sorts of things that, um, you know, that um, Heinlein and um, I, I think that David Brin and um, some of Scott Card's things um, are, are what I sort of consider science fiction rather than the fantasy realm. Right. Um, and I, I probably was, you know, I don't think I read a lot of specifically feminist um, science fiction, but I certainly would have read some. So, uh, but then when you, uh, then the, the the Holmes came sort of uh, sidetracked that, and then you finished it later after you'd done yeah. a couple of Holmes. Yeah, and with Russell, what I was doing was writing the coming-of-age story of a young female feminist Sherlock Holmes. I mean, she is that same kind of mind. If, you know, if a mind is an engine that you can implant in different bodies, um, she is that same mind, only she is you know, a 20th century, she's a female, she's, uh, she's a very different person, but has a very similar way of her, her mind functions like his. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably where that character began, was this idea that <laughs> you know, uh, Holmes has this little chorus in the background saying, "Holmes, how do you do it?" Uh, you know, every time he comes up with a uh, with what, um, in other circumstances, would be considered a lucky guess, um, but because Holmes has a guess, um, you, you know, you have Watson in the background saying, "How do you do it, Holmes?" And I thought, you know, here I am. I'm the mother of small kids. Um, uh, you How know, you my <laughs> my my son says he's not interested in dinner. The um, the, the chair is over by the counter space, and the cookie jar is empty and on its side. And uh, you know, I sort of know why he's not interested in dinner. Well, you know, I don't have some guy standing in the Christ background saying, "Lori, how do you do it?" <laughs> and I thought, "Damn, I need one." So, so you know, uh, that's that's where Russell came from. Is somebody who, um, to whom it seems quite natural to you know look at an empty cookie jar and say, "Why that happened?" Um, you, you know, instead of saying, "Oh, I just can't figure this out." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that makes sense. And I, w- I want to ask you kind of the same question: the uh, uh, the origins of. Uh, I mean, uh, you've obviously been involved in the literature one way or another for a while. What what's the origins of this particular work? Well, I t- to be honest, I, I started with. Um, with a handful of images that just um, hadn't found a home yet, and they were they were they uh, they existed as, like little surrealist paintings um, that I wanted to make into a story, um, and uh-huh. so those and there some of them some of them survived, uh, but 
then um, you know, it, then then the character of Charles Unwin came along, and it wasn't until I, I started writing it. I knew it was going to be a weird book, and I knew it was going to involve this giant bureaucracy. Um, but the the fact that um, it became a, uh, something of a mystery novel wasn't part of my plan at all. I just kind of stumbled into that. And uh, at the point when I realized that these this agency needed a function, needed to do something, and so it became a mystery-solving outfit, and um, and suddenly, you know, I have detectives. So, which actually required me to do a lot of homework, um, because my 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 knowledge of of, of the, that genre was spotty um, at best, and so um, and so then the, the process really like this 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 notion of this manual of detection really uh, grew out of my figuring out how how this 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 works, how a mystery novel works. And so I, as I was reading and as I was watching mystery films, I was taking a lot of notes. And so then, you know, and a lot of these notes end up kind of at, in the book. They, uh, there are excerpts from the manual within the manual <laughs> at the beginning of each chapter. And so, you know, for example, chapter 11 is on bluffing. Uh, and it, the, the, the excerpt is, um, answer questions with questions. If you are caught in a lie, lie again. You do not need to know the truth to trick another into speaking it. Which was simply what I saw detectives doing in one detective story after another, um, and so, and so then the, yeah, and so that it just kind of evolved from there. Unwin really is 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 actually kind of a a, a Doctor Watson whose Holmes has been taken from him. <laughs> that's his. Well, yeah, it, the book struck me. It 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 also seemed, as you say, you just you found these images and the box you put them in was the mystery. So you figure you had to learn how to work it. And it, uh, uh, of course, immediately you think of Michael Shaban, who did the, right. you know, <laughs> writers who have one foot in a genre and one out, you know, and... Um, and this, this is my first foot, so it's all I've got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking of, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, oh, Colson Whitehead, who did oh, right. also, you know, I think, and, and of course, Jonathan Lethem is, uh, uh, sort of does the same thing. But I think I think the the thing with yours, Colson Whitehead's um, um, the, the intuitionist. Or yeah, the, the yeah. intuitionist. The 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 bureaucracy was not a, a mystery solving. Right. Right. Which which immediately gave your book more it like a lean a little heavier on the genre thing. Sure. And so sure. I don't know. I, uh, it seems to me that. Uh, that a mystery is sort of like they're sort of like Crocs. They fit, they fit a lot of shoe. Uh, they fit a lot of feet, hmm. you know. And they see. It seems like a very handy. It seems like a much handier genre. Science fiction as a genre is kind of to, a, a bit toxic, and um, <laughs> and it seems like that mystery as a genre is is kind of a, a little bit warm. I mean, like, isn't that true? We're we're, we're Croc like we're. Fla flabby and full of holes, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem. But really bright. Bright color. <laughs> I mean, isn't there something to that? I I I I don't know. <laughs> no, I. I mean, I I think it's it's certainly a really useful and potent form. I I think you know it's why because because. <laughs> Because the, the 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 task. All right, I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, but but the task of the of the character in, in in a book is to figure something out, and the task of a reader is to figure something out. And so there's a there's a nice there's a nice meeting there. It's um it's a it's a it's a truth seeking exercise. 
Basically, mysteries are about the quest. I mean, they are they are they are yes. the classic quest novel. Oh. Um, you are you 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 are following the um, the detective on this search for the truth, and the truth is not just a, a convenient way of, of you know telling a story, and it isn't a way of just making things neat at the end. It is a way of restoring order to the universe. That when you have oh. when you have found this quest, and when you have gone through. Um, you know, uh, like like Mike Connolly says, the, 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 <coughs> the cop works the crime, but the crime works the cop as well. And that when you are telling the story, um, the the investigation is shaping your instructor, uh, y- your investigator, not just um, you know they're not just going through and figuring stuff out. That in a good mystery, um, the person who solves the crime is not the person who. Uh, you know, not the same person they started out the book as. So That's you, you very have helpful. That ev- every one of the every one of the mystery stories, the good mystery stories, is a quest. Interesting, because there's a way. I mean, not to not to oppose mystery and science fiction, but uh, I mean, mystery is is clearly the the preferred genre, both for. Uh, across the board for, for people who are doing literary tricks whether it's Paul Auster or, or Jedediah or people who are 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 using um, you know are using that as the form for for the novel of the you know writing about the world it, but it seems to me like maybe maybe that's the reason science fiction in a way is about changing the world you 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 transform things into something unrecognizable or that you're hoping to and mysteries about bringing things back around in a way, and maybe the maybe there's something more. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It just struck me as as a, a sort of an interesting question. Um, well, I think you find works. a lot of literary and and um, science fiction genre writers who embrace the forms of the mystery, but you also find a lot of people who embrace some of the. I don't know if you can call them forms of science fiction. I mean, isn't that what magical realism is? These I mean, that is, it is a way of being a literary writer, but um, be, because there's a category for it, you don't have to call yourself a genre writer. So right. There, you know. right, right. But, no, but if, you, if you're... If no you bitterness wanna, here, right? <laughs> that's what I meant by toxic. If you, if you, it, it, it's okay to call yourself a, uh, a mystery writer. It, it, it doesn't uh, diminish you in that way. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a marketing disaster. Yeah. I, I, when I was in college, I had a, a professor named Eric Rabkin who is, is big in the fantasy field, the fantastic field. And he did this this course on the fantastic in literature, and I expected it to be fantasy. And he started with Poe and with Conan Doyle, because it, and it, I don't think it's science fiction as much as it is the fantastic that mystery fits into, hmm. because Sherlock Holmes is as much a superhero, supernatural being as anybody who's ever walked across the page. He's so not real, um, and yet he is. And that's the, the border between, between mystery and the fantastic, is that you've got this structure of the mystery, but you've got somebody, in, in Holmes's case, who is larger than life, um, sort of saying, 
and this and this and this, and the chorus in the back going, how did you do that? <laughs> um, and the how did you do that chorus is what makes it fantastic. I, I would have thought that you would choose um, the Conan Doyle stories as fantastic for those specific stories that deal with bizarre things like the the, the, yeah, the professor that's turning himself into a monkey because he's using monkey glands to make himself young for his new wife and you know I mean, you know you know a little fantasy here. Um, well, that's what I liked about this guy is that he just said Sherlock Holmes as as as, as a character is a, is the first superhero. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't come. I'm sure Robert Downey Jr. would agree with that. Right. I've I've heard China Mieville say uh, some similar things about about um, the the mystery genre being being fantastic in some way. That the that the conceits are are um, are fantastic conceits. That the, that that those those leaps of logic that that Holmes makes. They're they're they're. They don't, they're not well. They're not leaps of logic. They're just leaps. And 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 you know the, what connects the the the, um, the evidence to to the revelation is is actually is some is often not traceable. Um, and which makes I guess you know superpower is kind of a, a useful word there. In, in a little bit in the same way that people think of George Attire or that particular ilk as being fantasy because it is a world that is patently not real and yet is enormously appealing. Um, that Jane Austen's world is real, Georgia Tyre's world is not. It just is, is perched on a sort of precipice above reality. Huh. Uh, and I think that Sherlock Holmes is sort of perched uh, on a precipice above being real in a certain sense. He is. He is super heroic. He is just smarter than everybody. Except Mary. <laughs> I don't know. He's there, but it seems to me like what the, what the mystery does, no matter how fantastic the, the mystery itself or the, the, the radiocination of the detective, the world it's in, is it, it's in a quotidian box. It's always... You go down. You go down one flight of stairs, and you're on the street in London. You know, there's no. Uh, it it does. It seems that that's one of the things about the mystery that makes it so useful. Um, I don't know. I'm talking about something I don't really know because I've never tried to write a mystery. Uh, well, certainly yeah. a mystery is dependent on 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 steps, on facts, and you, you know, you you only can build a successful crime fiction story by um, snippets of everyday reality. Hmm. And if you, it happens that your character, you know, sees things that aren't there, such as Holmes does, that's, that doesn't mean that what you're doing is not building the crime fiction. Because they'll turn out to be there. Mm. It, theoretically, yes. Theoretically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, some, of, some of the Conan Doyle stuff you think, mm, no, not so much. <laughs> Learning about the future, mm -hmm. learning about new things as they happen. 
Right. I mean, I, I can tell you that in my everyday life, I, I rarely figure anything out. You know, it's, it's, it's all, um, it's all a jumble, and um, and, and so you know, the, I mean, it, there's, right, right, or some, you know, I literally, it, it, it some, sometimes it, it took me very long time to figure out, you know, that that um, that oh, like if I if I eat that before I go to sleep. I'm going to have weird dreams, you know, just like just connecting some basic principles. Maybe that's just me, but but that's a little orange pill. <laughs> but uh, but you know, but I think that's kind of the allure of 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 this kind of writing, being being able to um, to order things and to well and to suggest that that things actually do make a kind of sense when when so often they don't is is uh, is really is really compelling. You know, I always love it when people say that, um, you know, uh, X, either, um, you know, women or mystery writers or whoever, um, are, are so perceptive and, you know, notice the details and things. <laughs> I'm thinking, mm. <laughs> not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. been talking about mystery and science fiction as if they're, they're like mutually exclusive boxes, but it seems to me that mystery is like this genre that bleeds into every other genre depending upon how it's used. I mean, you've got Blade Runner, which is basically mystery set in cyberpunk. You've got um, Anonymous Rex, which is mysteries involving a Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> You've got um, The Name of the Rose, which is mystery set in historic fantasy. Right. Um, the Harry Dresden books, mystery set in a world that's, all, that's urban fantasy. And it, it seems to me that what we call mis whether we call something mystery or not is almost like a question of how much of a percentage of other uh, supernatural stuff is going on in that or or paranormal or or science or fantastic <laughs> or whatever. But I don't know that it, you can really set up and say that mystery is as a genre opposed to science fiction or fantasy or historical fiction because it kind of gets used in all of those, and where it gets shelved seems to be more about marketing than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it definitely is. That was the question. That, that's sort of why I raised the question. It, uh, it, it, you're right. It's in all the, uh, all the uh, I mean, it's, it's part of um, the, the Odyssey, you know. I mean, it's part of, but, but there's a, there is a, there is a thing about mystery as a as a as a genre, literally as a marketing genre, that makes it um, kind of special. If you call something a mystery, then it 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 changes how people look at it. You know, it changes how things in it appear. And and to me, one of the interesting things about Jedediah's is you'll start to th you immediately call it a mystery. And then, and then everything you do in in it, it the, all the art direction and all the architecture and everything, is there to disorient you rather than orient you. So it's uh, it's it's an anti mystery in a way, but it can only be an anti mystery if it's if it starts out in that box, which is a marketing. Well, box. but when you call something a mystery, then um, it, it, I think it does change the the reading experience to an extent because immediately, you know. You, the reader is is suspicious, um, and and that's and that's that's maybe one of the big differences. You know, are are you reading this and and paying attention to the details in a way that you you wouldn't pay attention to them in in um, you know in in a different kind of book? Um, 
G.K. Chesterton wrote this wonderful essay. I think it's just called How to Write a Mystery Story. Um, where he, and he, you know, he talks about that. And he, I'm, and I'm going to get the example all wrong, but basically it was something like, you know, if, if in a, a mystery story there's a, um, you know, there's a vicar uh, in the garden under the treehouse, the reader won't say, why is the vicar in the garden under the treehouse? The reader will say, why did the writer put that vicar in that garden <laughs> under that treehouse? You know, and what's going on? So there's, you know, and immediately it's the, it's, it starts a, it starts a kind of a game, um, which you know I certainly found like a. a to be a very, a very uh, fun and one to play. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think that um, that mysteries and and science fiction are at all opposed. I think, um, for for one thing, that mystery, the mystery world. I mean, it's it's very difficult to talk about um, mysteries and crime fiction without getting overlap because the proper properly speaking, a mystery is the traditional. Approach. I mean, you've got a body, you've got an investigation, you have red herrings, and you have a, so the solution at the end of it. I mean, that that's your classic mystery. It's something I rarely write. Um, I mean, what I write is probably more suspense um, because it's you know it doesn't keep that focus at all times on the crime. Um, something like China Mieville's The City in the City. I mean, is this magnificent police procedural? And it's beautifully done sci-fi. And I think that when the two overlap that way, it's, it's something you know, much bigger than the sum of its two parts. Hmm. Interesting. Anybody? Yo. I don't know if I can answer the, f the first question. Um, it, in, in, in terms of um, the setting, uh, in, in, in this book anyway, and, but I th you know this, this is different each, each time I, I approach something, um, I wanted it to be in um, a, 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 a setting that was maybe of the past, but um, kind of unidentifiable. And so the city isn't named, and, um, and there are payphones, and people use dimes in them. But um, it's meant to simultaneously Evoke the kind of um, hard-boiled uh, kind of no film noir world, um, and also be um, in some ways like a fairy tale, where where uh, we are in no place and no time, um, because I I wanted it to have that 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 um, a degree of but a Kafka fairy tale like the castle right <laughs> right sure sure which is one of my favorite mystery novels yeah there are no iPhones there are, there are no iPhones oh that's true that's true. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Uh, that's an interesting question whether if you write a mystery in the future if it's necessarily science fiction I mean uh, again that's something that you sort of depends on how y how the bookstores categorize something that I think um, probably 
the fact that it is written in the future, the reason that um, the, the writer chose to do that was because there were elements of science fiction in it. I mean, you, you, otherwise they would have written it in the present. Um, but I, I think from, uh, from the point of view of someone who writes um, a series set in the past, um, I mean, the Russell books begin in 1915, and they now have worked their way up to 1924. I, I love the texture that they allow me to give in a novel, because when I'm writing about, um, like the one that I was reading is about India in, um, in 1924, but it's also about us in Afghanistan now. And so when I write about the problems that the British have had with, you know, the principalities and, and so forth throughout the, the time when the, the Brits were there, um, I am intending that the reader feels me over their shoulder saying, um, you catching this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the same thing, you know, when I wrote, I wrote one set in um, what was in Palestine um, in 1919 that writing about that time, uh, on the one hand, I'm, I'm just writing about the period and it's, you know, it's exotic and my characters are, you know, involved in the early days of the British protectorate. On the other hand, the person reading it in 1990 or 2000 um, is saying, oh, I, I see where those problems are coming. Um, you know, the, these well-meaning decisions and choices that the British made um, led to the precise of the problems that we're having there now. And, and that's one of the things that you can do with historical fiction um, that, that, I really, that I really like. In a sense, the, the readers get to see parts, the, the background of the, your mysteries solved, and we already know what happened. Know this, we know what happened to Palestine at some 80 years after your mysteries are set. So mm -hmm. there's, you get to see the, seek the solution in the past, but understand the solution in, in the present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why usually when you're doing a historical mystery, you do something that, that, that isn't um, an element that everybody knew. I mean, I mean so that I, I was writing about, you know, this plot that you probably never knew about. Uh, of to to blow up the um, you know the dome of the rock. I mean, and, until that book came out, nobody knew about. It. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a process. When you're writing about Palestine or, or India or back in that, do you go there? Um, yeah, I I I don't think I've ever written <coughs> major sections of a book. Um, in a place that I haven't spent some time. The one exception is, <coughs> sorry, I have a book um, called uh, Keeping Watch that is set partly in, um, in Vietnam in the 1960s. And I have not been to Vietnam, I have been to a jungle. Um, but part of the problem with, you know, not living in the 60s is that um, if I were to travel to Vietnam, I, I would not be traveling to the same yeah. place that the characters are, are experiencing anyway. 
Well, if you're going to Palestine, you're going, not going to 1919, unless you've got a better time machine than I do. Uh, <laughs> well, although there is there is such a lot of, I, I mean, certainly the desert. Um, there are huge patches of, uh, I mean, if you can talk about huge patches of a small country, um, there, there, are, there are areas that really are not tremendously changed in, in the past hundred years. Um, in, in the game, for example, um, I, I was in India in the 80s, um, but my husband grew up there in the 20s, and so he, he was there at the time that Russell is um, you know, writing about. And India has really only made um, tremendous changes in the last 10 years. I mean, in the 80s, as soon as you got outside the cities, you would find stuff that basically had not changed um, since, since the 20s or since the 1850s. Mm. Um, you know, an occasional phone line and, and electricity. But other than that, the way the people lived was not hugely changed. But one of the things, I remember Stan Robinson, um, who's good friends with Cecilia Holland, the, the historical novelist. Cecilia and him read here together, actually. And he said one of the links between historical fiction and science fiction is that you have to orient your reader in the world. You have to, you have to give a, enough of a world so they know where they are, you know. Uh, I think probably you don't have that problem with Sherlock Holmes because... Uh, 19th century London is as familiar to people as uh, New York City, or uh, it, it's they they already think they know it, or they know a, a um, they know a cliche about it anyway. There's, uh, um, but if you're writing, uh, like you say about Palestine or somewhere like that, you have to you have to orient people, and science fiction has to do that with a few little objects, you know, a, a few well-placed art direction stuff. And a good historical novelist can do that, right? But it seems like sometimes what you're doing in fiction is to disorient people. That's what <laughs> back to Jedediah. It's like, you think you know where you are and then you, it's like Brazil, you know. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> I, I don't know that, uh, you know, the business of orienting your reader is very tricky because um, there's nothing that kills a, the beginning of a book faster than somebody who is scrupulous about telling you what you're seeing, you know. I, I mean, I think you really have to, uh, with, uh, I mean, like with Califia's daughters, it, you just, you meet the person in her daily life and this is what she's doing. And you, it takes you quite a while to figure out how that, how that life came about. And I think that, as a reader, um, is what I like about, um, about certain books, is that they don't say, they don't start by saying, well, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to find this, and it's going to happen this way. Um, you assume that your reader knows these things. You assume that your reader knows that there's this city where it's always night and always raining and oh, yeah. always confusing. Yeah. And, and that's the way it is because yeah. that's, that's the reality. And you don't stop to pick people up and carry them along. You, you expect them to follow you. Right. And, and in a, you know, with a good writer, they do. 
And that's and, and well, and that's how so much of science fiction works. Certainly, I mean, you write you write from inside that place. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm just reading um, Gene Wolfe's uh, Book of the New Sun series. I've just started in on that, but and it's extraordinary the things that he does in in in, in that book where um, someone will will just refer. Oh, I read this passage this morning where um, some something is being passed around. He says. As as young as young men at sport will pass silver balls to one another, and you're like, well, what? Where is that coming from? It's it's just <laughs> the, you don't know the context, but he he assumes that you know the context, and um, and is is giving you this in this this in on 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 this world at the same time that he's he's telling you the story. It's it's just magnificent. Tell us something about uh, small beer. What do you do at Small Beer? Are you a, a acquiring editor, a copy editor? Um, <laughs> I'm a bit of everything. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm now officially an editor. We, we struck the assistant off the front not long ago. Um, and I've started to acquire some, uh, some fiction. My, the, the first book which I've acquired will be out in July. It's called Meeks. By, um, it's a first novel by a woman named Julia Holmes. And um, you know it's 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 a small it's a small operation. There, you know, Kelly and Gavin and myself and um, uh, and Michael DeLuca, who's been there for some years, and um, a, a group of, of volunteers, and we we all have to do a bit of everything in order to to make it run. And so, um, which is part of what I, I love about it. Uh, so we're all always reading submissions and um, answering the phone and sending books in the mail and all the rest. So how did you get into editing? I got into editing in college. I I got a work study job with a literary journal called Conjunctions, which I I continue to work for. It's um uh, well it's based out of Bard College, and um, the editor Bradford Morrow also runs it partly out of New York, um, and it's um it's it's one of my favorite journals and 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 also very exciting for me. It's they they've done a, a couple issues now. Um, Peter Straub did one, right? Right, right. That there was there was the um, well, there was the new wave fabulist issue um, some years back, and now more recently the betwixt the between issue, which was co-edited with Brian Evanson, um, and which which are exploring a lot of you know a lot of these questions of, of genre um, that, that we've been talking about. You know, Lori, it strikes me that the world of Calypius daughters in some way might be more familiar to us than the world of. Russell and Holmes, I mean, closer temporally and perhaps, and, and I mean, graphically? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, it is interesting when you write about the 20s because we, we tend to think of them as being an awful long time ago. And I, when I started, you know, I started writing them um, based on when Conan Doyle was finished with Holmes. Um, and he finished with Holmes at the beginning of the Great War in August of 1914. Um, so Russell meets him the following the following spring. Um, and and so I, I kind of had the period thrust on me because that's that's when the <coughs> that's when I had to have the meet. But I found that when I started researching the 20s, um, I felt very strangely at home there. I mean, as a child of the 60s, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, these are my people. <laughs> I can understand some of their ways of doing things. Um, you know, the women's movement, the wildlife that you get, the, um, 
the fact that you have um, huge social changes that um, are centered around a war, in our case Vietnam and in their case the Great War. Um, you know, all of these immense um, defining mm -hmm. moments of the 20s mm -hmm. are, are also defining moments of the 60s. And, uh, and I, I found, um, <coughs> you know, it's, it's tricky. I was talking to um, a, a fellow named Andrew Taylor who does some lovely uh, historical novels. Um, one time we did an event in Cambridge and I was saying that I find it tough because every so often I'll come across a phrase or, um, you know, some, something that jars the reader and makes, makes you think that it's anachronistic, but it's not. And so I was saying that I usually when I come across something like this, I, I tend not to use it because I don't want my, my readers to say, oh, she got it wrong there. You know, even though I know it was right. Um, you can't you know, pause in the prose to put an asterisk and say, yeah, this really is how they are. <laughs> it's just, it just sort of doesn't work. Um, but, but Andrew is a real purist, and, you know, he takes the, he takes the attitude that if it happens, you put it in there. So, you know, okay. So. Cool. Yeah. I had a, uh, a technique question for Lori. You had mentioned that when you start writing, you sort of follow the story where it wants to go and where the characters want to go. And I find this very interesting for a mystery because it seems to me <laughs> that as a, for a mystery, yeah. you have to know the end. You, you, the you end. and me both, friend. <laughs> how do you like, just do a whole lot of rewriting, or how do you uh, yeah. go about this? Yeah, I, 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 you know, if I could manage to write um, an, a, an outline, um, it would save me so much work. It really, it really would. Because you. you know, I, I, I write this first draft, and it's such a relief to get to the end of it. And then the mm. the rewrite is making it work. You know, mm. you know. Okay, I got the bones there, um, but there's you know pieces sticking out. Yeah, I think um, the the one time that I wrote a book that. I actually had the the sequence of plot uh, established for me. It was a, a, a standalone novel called Folly. And Folly is about a woman who goes to this island to rebuild a house and in the process to rebuild her life. And there's a certain amount of mystery and suspense, but that basically is the story. So her story is based, runs parallel to the, the building of the house. So it has ground clearing and foundation and the walls and that, you know, and, and because the structure of the story has to follow the structure of the house, I wrote that book in five weeks. And, and you know, I had, I had a lot of rewrite and I had certain elements that I worked in afterwards, but the, the main book itself just was there. And it would be lovely if I could do that, <laughs> do that every time. I can write three books a year. And um, it's interesting that you call it folly. Yes, <laughs> the yeah, folly. the folly. But, um, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind um, is, is an organizing principle that keeps track of things. And I can't, uh, you know, I cannot visualize a book that I haven't that I haven't written it, you know. It just makes no sense to me to talk about and then and then and then. Um, 
I, it just, I, you know, I, my, my imagination doesn't work that way. But somewhere in the back of my mind, there's someone keeping track. Because when I'm writing and I begin to get off track, um, you know, little, little bells will go off. And I will stop and look at what I have and realize that I've missed something or I've introduced an illogicality or, you know, something like that. And so, so far, that little principle in the back of my head seems to be still on the job. Um, <laughs> if, if, if she, you know, he or she ever takes the, the year off, I'm really in trouble. <laughs> where, where, do you, where do you think that principle was trained? I asked you. know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know. I think it's just born there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. But uh, but it is fascinating how you know you you go to uh, that's one of the advantages of of a conference like BoucherCon is that you have dozens and dozens of writers and to listen to someone um, you know there'll be a panel <laughs> on how you put a story together and you'll have someone like um, Lee Child who who has a very very precise set of and he he writes and he knows exactly what he's doing every day and then there's me and i i don't know what the fuck i'm doing <laughs> right honestly honestly i you know i i really don't um and 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 yet we both write novels and we both make a living off it and y you know it's it's fascinating to me how how two people can come at a, a job from such absolutely opposite directions and and both do it yeah. This is also a kind of a technical question for both of you. Um, a little louder. Sorry. Going back to the idea of establishing a, a universe that's not the reality universe that we all live in, and how much you give the reader in terms of how much you describe that universe, um, when you were write, when you write in that sort of universe, do you find that you write more for yourself? kind of describing the universe and fleshing it out, and then you decide what you're going to give the reader? Um, do you, is that necessary? Do you find that necessary, I guess? Hmm. I, I, can, I, I, I can say that um, I really was figuring out the world as I, as I wrote it, and um, a, lot of, a lot of things fell away. You know, uh, the, the, my original vision was a very, very different one, and it really evolved as I, you know, as 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 my protagonist got to know the place. That's that's how that's how I got to know the place. Um, and I'm actually an obsessive planner. Um, I had, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't know that it is a time saver because I had huge charts and um, outlines um, and and flow charts. And uh, so, so very little of it survived because I found ultimately <laughs> what was what was interesting was what would come unexpectedly, um, and so the version the version of this book that's that's taking place in um, in uh, the, the 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 first the, the original city of Enoch where uh, where Adam and Eve um, are where where Cain Cain founds. Enoch in, in the Old Testament. That was that was the first idea, um, and I had a whole light and plan for that city. But you know, I've been typewriters <laughs> appeared, so um, yeah. So I, I, it's it's an exploratory process. Yeah, I I too, um, you know, I, I I generally write the first draft for myself, um, and don't worry too much because I know nobody will see it. Um, the only person that I show a first draft to is my editor. 
And if she ever retires, I'm not never showing it to anyone because <laughs> any normal person would look at my thing and say, this is unpublishable. We must cancel her contract immediately <laughs> because there'll be characters that, you know, are in the first third of the book and then just disappear. Um, there'll be a character who suddenly starts talking and they, you know, you'll think, where does this, and you page back and think, I, I don't remember this character, but you know, I, I decided that I had to put him in, and so there'll be a note at the side saying, introduce this character, which of course is on page two. But you know, I mean, it, it comes along. But she trusts you to do that anyway, probably. Well, it, yeah, she, she's worked with me long enough to know that that's the process, yeah. and that's just how I do it. Um, but you know, sooner or later, I'm gonna have to grow up and just not, <laughs> not do it that way. But um, I, I find that, um, my first drafts tend to be a sort of expanded outline. My first drafts of a full, full-size novel are about 300 pages, um, which in, in print would come to about 220 at, at that. Um, but I'm, I'm one of those writers who writes a, a very spare first draft. I mean, some people write everything in the first draft and spend the rewrite trimming it. Um, if I did that, I'd have a short story. Uh, but I tend to write the bones in the first draft. And then the, the rewrite, which is where most of my interest is. I mean, I'm just in such a desperate rush to get the book there right. in the first draft that the, the rewrite is where my energy and my, the real craft comes in. Um, that, you know, that's where the idea of what the themes are and what the subplots are and how this person is related to that image and you know how the things tie together. And it's fascinating to me during that rewrite is how often that little organizing principle has stuck something there that I haven't realized why. Because I don't tend to do a lot of self-editing on the first draft at all. Occasionally if I'm if if, if there's a section that's really confusing, I, I, I will go back and clean it. But for the most part, um, it's very rough. But when I go through and read it cold at the end of that, I will find that there are these odd little you know, scenes or hooks or images or things that are precisely what I need 150 pages later. Mm. Um, and it's fascinating to me as, I mean, it really is a very mysterious process. Madeline. I don't know if there's a why to this at all, but um, why is Mary Russell Jewish? People, people ask me that. Yes. Why? Why is Why is Russell Jewish? Um, why is she American? I mean, <laughs> I, I, as I said, I wasn't sure if there was a why to it. I just well, it yeah. I mean, there's probably any number of reasons. And again, I don't. I don't tend to plan characters any more than I plan books. So that what happens is a character is there, and then I look back at them. I mean, the same question of why, why did I make Kate Martinelli gay? Well, I, I didn't, but that, you know, she turned out that way, so. Um, Mary Russell, I, I think, is Jewish for a couple of reasons. One of them is that my background in academia was Old Testament, and so it enables me to, um, you know, to have a character who is interested in the same things I am. And it, <laughs> You know, allows me to do all kinds of fun stuff like, you know, translate Hebrew, which normally you can't do in a mystery. But, you know, but, but Mary Russell can. So, you know, live with it. Um, and, 
And also in Britain, um, the Jewish community is a very distinct group. I mean, it is a very small, very tight-knit, very distinct minority, and in the, in the 20s, even more so than it is now. Um, so that she is, by definition, an outsider in all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways. Um, and, and that, of course, is where you start with that kind of person. So okay. we, we always you had a question make them suffer. Uh, are there any rights issues involved with having a Sherlock Holmes in your book, or can anybody write a Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You have my permission. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the, the, the question of, um, of copyright, when I first started writing them, um, Britain was still under an old copyright law, so they were in the public domain in Britain. Um, when my publisher here wanted to buy them in 1994, 93, um, they, they were in the public domain under US law. And then Britain went back to uh, the common market definition of which has to do with death rather than the last story. So, um, and so for a couple of years I couldn't publish in Britain. But for you know, for all intents and purposes, this the character is in the in the common domain. <coughs> the, the family <coughs> it keeps talking about trying to um, trying to re re. Um, take possession of uh, the copyright. I don't know that they could could do that. I think it, it probably would not prove possible. There are also some visual things. Um, when I was working doing covers for Thor, we had a series of Holmes pastiche novels, and I discovered that in fact the Deerstalker hat, the cape, greatcoat, and the meerschaum were copyrighted by Universal. So you cannot use those, or at that time, in the early 90s, you couldn't use those as a cover mm -hmm. or in, in art because those were under copyright in terms of the film. Had nothing to do with the Conan Doyle estate, but they would still have come down on you with the wrath of many lawyers. So we, we had to reconfigure things. Wow. Wow. It's, it's yeah. On the other hand, they're on books, and you yeah, know, well, I, I haven't been right. sued. So. Yeah, Th those don't even appear yeah. in the stories, do they? No, they were all made up. Okay, yeah. yeah. So. yeah. Well, uh, let me. It's getting late, but le what's next for you? Um, well, I have I have some. Not tonight. Sure. <laughs> you don't want to know. Um, <laughs> I have some stories uh, in the works that are. Um, some have come out recently. I'm, I'm working on this story that is kind of. Um, has, has sucked me in and I can't stop, which is um, it's on these index cards and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a Hamlet story, um, which you can shuffle in any order. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm starting in on a, on a, on a new book, which um, I don't want to say too much about it because I'm really just figuring it out, but it, it takes place on a train and... Um, it's one of those train books. It's a train, it's a train <laughs> novel. And there, there, there are a lot of words missing in it. <laughs> I'm not just because I haven't written them, but because there are words missing. That's they yeah. Fell off the train. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys. Uh, we'll see you next month. Um, let this has been really very interesting for Lori and Jedediah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
You're going to send books. And, uh... You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.